You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we talk with people in and out of the world of sports who have one thing in common, their love for the world of sports. This week, it comes from somebody who's kind of in the world of sports on the edges. He's a super fan. George Went. You know him from Cheers. If you grew up as a fan of TV sitcoms in the 70s, there's not a person on the planet who could not have liked that show. And if you didn't like the show, turn off the podcast now. Because I loved Cheers. And when I learned we had a chance to chat with one of the feature characters on Cheers, I could not have been more excited. You know, the funny thing about sitcoms, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but I've always felt this way. The centerpiece of the sitcom is never the truly funniest person. I always think back to Mary Tyler Moore. That was a great sitcom, but she wasn't the funny person on the show. I think of Seinfeld. Seinfeld was funny, but think of the characters around him. It was the same thing with Cheers. Ted Danson was a great character, but it was all those around him that made that show really funny. Whether it was Cliff Clavin, whether it was Rhea Perlman, whether it was Norm, who is now known by a singular name. And we get into the conversation, by the way, about how his name is almost iconic in the sitcom world. And there aren't too many people you can say that about. He's got some great stories about growing up on the south side of Chicago. He's got a great story about how his career started and ultimately ended at Notre Dame. Think Blutarski and Animal House. You'll certainly get a smile out of that one. And of course, you're also going to find out how he was the only member of Cheers that was in every season and every episode. And I know right now you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, Ted Dance, what about all the other ones that were in all those years? Nope. They all missed episodes for a certain reason. George went the only one not to do that. You're going to hear that in this conversation. Here now my conversation with a TV icon, George Went. George, I'm I'm so happy that you could join me on the podcast. Again, you know, I I was sharing with you before we got started that it's a podcast that's, you know, not only about the athletes themselves, but about folks that have a love for the world of sports. And the truth is, I'm not even 100% sure about your love of the world of sports because I know you did the super fan thing on Saturday Night Live, and I happen to work with Brett Favre every week on NFL radio. And, you know, he's talked to me about that piece you did, but I knew you grew up on the south side of Chicago. But did you grow up a huge Bears fan? Is it, are, are you truly the fan that we see in that little sketch comedy? Indeed, yeah. You know, I, I'm not that guy, but um, uh, yeah, I'm a Bear fan. And um, believe it or not, I'm old enough to where uh, when I was a little kid, uh, it was the Chicago Cardinals. So, uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, they were the South Side team. I'm a South Sider, and they played at Comiskey. And uh, so, um, I. You know, I've always sort of liked the Cardinals on that basis. And uh, they moved to St. Louis and they moved to Phoenix. And it's like, all right, I still kind of like them as my my B team. You're not old enough to say, because I always say the last great quarterback they had was Sid Luckman. You're not old enough for that, though. We know that, right? (laughs) You you know, so so where are you living now, by the way? Are you on the West Coast? Yeah, I live in Los Angeles. So, so. You know, usually Chicago guys, they like just stay in Chicago. Are you happy to be on the West Coast or do you still consider yourself a Chicago guy? Well, 
you know, I didn't move out of Chicago until I was uh, 32, I want to say. So uh, that, you know, I'm pretty much a Chicago guy, born and raised. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm happy enough here in L.A. And, uh, you know, I was. Uh, this is my dream come true, kind of, that you can, uh, you know, follow your, your home teams uh, regardless. You know, I've done projects in the U.K. where I could, you know, watch Notre Dame football games. Nothing crazy, you know, like uh, on the computer. Great. Yeah, it is remarkable. Now, I will tell you a little background. I lived in Chicago for 10 years, and my two older boys actually started their schooling at the University of Chicago Lab School. Wow. So so every day when they were young, we had to drive them down there. And I was there when, when Soldier Field was going through its renovation. Right. And I would drive back, and I would look and go, it looks like a spaceship. Like, does any Chicago Bear fan like what they did to Soldier Field with the renovation on the outside? Um. I'm not a architecture critic. Um, I've seen, you know, good and bad, uh, you know, uh, notices about uh, Soldier Field. I will say, um, yes, it looks like a spaceship landed on a Greek, uh, you know, the Parthenon or something. Uh, but uh, uh, it it looks much better at night, you know, for those night games. Yeah, it doesn't it, it does. that crazy. And it looks better at night from the blimp because the setting, you know, yeah. down near the, 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 the you know, the, the shed aquarium and, you know, the science museum and all the stuff that's on the water. I mean, when you get a real picture of where Soldier Field is from the sky, yeah. I mean, it really is spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Chicago yeah, uh, kind of nailed their whole lakefront situation. That was really uh, smart, you know, whenever they did that, Adler and uh, I don't know who those guys were, the, the architect guys. But, um, yeah, they, they made the whole entire uh, lakefront is is park. Yeah. As opposed to industry, which, like, if you would see Toronto, say, uh, Toronto is almost entirely industry. There's a couple of parks. But uh, Chicago, is they put all the industry in Indiana <laughs> or somewhere north of the city. And the city is uh, one big-ass park. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what I found fascinating. I don't know if you ever heard of the book or read the book, The Devil in the White City. You know, I, I remember I, reading it, yeah. and I, I learned so much. I learned about the Ferris wheel and the, and the Science Museum and really how all of that came in, you know, into form, you know, you know, with the backdrop of uh, a terrible crime that was going on at the time. Yeah, that, I never read it, uh, but uh, I hear great things. And um, you probably then you probably know the architects and city planners I was referring to. What, what were their names? You recall? I don't recall the names. I read the book. It's got to be a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, I think when I was living in Chicago. But I, I do remember learning about the largest Ferris wheel, which is still there at Navy Pier and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Um, so, so they definitely got it right. But, you know, the South Side, when I lived in Chicago, had a certain reputation. What was it like when you were a kid? It was very segregated, um, uh, but, you know, uh, um, it was, you know, it's where I grew up. What can I tell you? Um, it was, uh, you know, there's not much you can say about it. <laughs> it's where I grew up. You know, I, I had a, like a relatively uh, uh, suburban type neighborhood. You know, it was it was leafy and green and 
single family homes for the most part. So it, uh, it wasn't uh, hardcore inner city, if you will, but uh, we were hardcore inner city adjacent. Now it was in the city limits, but it just uh, was a, a neighborhood unto its own. So, so I need to ask you before we get into some of the other things. You said that you know it's great, you know, living in today because you know you, you can follow your teams, yeah. you know, no matter where you are. If you have Direct TV, you can get a football package and see the Chicago Bears. You can follow Notre Dame in so many ways. How closely do you still pay attention? Are you? Are, is it? Is it appointment television for you on the weekends when the Bears are playing? Do you still have that kind of interest? Well, I did not buy the NFL package this year, and it's kind of weird. Um, so I didn't. I didn't bother because the Bears have been um, just a little uh, underwhelming, and you know, like I, you think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really, uh, I honestly, Notre Dame uh, is much more appointment TV for me. Uh, I, you know, it's always been a, a passion of mine. Notre Dame football. I don't really care about Notre Dame basketball. I'm more of a DePaul fan, uh, which is you know, awful these days. Yeah. And uh, of course, White Sox um, and, you know, whoever's playing the Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> I tried not to uh, hate on the Cubs too much, but um, it, it's tough, you know, it, it's, it, that, that's tough. Listen, you'd appreciate this. Number one is I work on NFL radio five days a week, and three of them are spent with Brady Quinn, the former Notre Dame quarterback. Oh, great. Uh, is my analyst. So I'm sure you'd appreciate your love affair with Notre Dame. But listen, I, I, I've talked to others. I grew up in New York, and I've said, when you're a New York fan, and we have two teams in every sport, you love one and hate the other. And that's the beauty of sports. It's not said in a negative way. Uh, I've told people that, you know, I'm an Islanders fan. So my two favorite teams are the New York Islanders and anybody playing the Rangers. Yeah. So th that's okay. If you know, you grow up on the South side in the shadow of Comiskey park, you've got to be a white Sox fan. You're supposed to hate the Cubs, George. You're not supposed to like them. Yeah. There's really only one way to be a white Sox fan. And that is to be born and raised on the South side of Chicago. There's really no other, you know, uh, there's no other reason for it. If, like if you're, a postgraduate sort of person moving to Chicago for a career, you're going to glom onto the Cubs because it's the yeah. fun team, the cool team. And, you know, the, the Sox are, you know, always the, the B team. And, and But, you know, um, I thought about changing to be a Cub fan as a career move. So I could <laughs> hang out with all the cool guys, John Cusack and, you know, Jim Belushi and uh, whoever the hell, other Murrays and all them. Uh, they're all friends, uh, by the way. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't change my colors, and and uh, you know, I'm glad that they've, you know, they had a nice thing in 2016, was it? Uh, yeah, right around there. Yeah, yeah, it was. But um, dynasties are unseemly in Chicago. The Bulls were an anomaly, but you know, it's it's nice to win something every 20 years. Yeah, but 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 two things the White Sox got wrong. One is the, the first thing that we all know is they were the last team to build the stadium before like uh, Camden Yards was built and yeah. before you know all the new ones came in. And the second that building opened, it was like a dinosaur. And of right. course, your, your owner wanted to move them out of there. But um, the other mistake they made, and you'll remember this, I think it was the '80s when Jack McDowell was there. They had the worst uniforms ever. 
Yeah. Those like yeah. shirts that were, I mean, come on, George, you, you yeah. couldn't be, you couldn't be happy with that. Yeah, no, they, they were awful. But um, how about Jack McDowell? I love that guy. He was a gamer and, and also a musician kind of, uh, yeah. you know, uh, he sent me some of his work is pretty, really fun stuff. Yeah. So it, it has to be cool as a celebrity when you're a fan of sports and then all of a sudden that gains you access. So, because, you know, you're, you're a fan of these guys and, you know, like anybody else, wow, I can hang out with Jack McDowell or he's sending you stuff or I can be at the games and people recognize you. I mean, that must've been really cool when you were young. It, it was, it was, it was pretty great. Um, I remember, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty great. You know, did you, did you like the basketball and hockey teams too, or was it just oh, baseball? Yeah. yeah, no, I like, uh. Uh, of course, you know, the Jordan Bulls, that was uh, hilarious and fun. And, uh, you know, a very, you know, un-Chicago-like dynasty. But, um, and the Blackhawks had a terrific run. Uh, right now, um, it's looking like they're, uh, they're, they're flirting with 500 and uh, so are the <laughs> Bulls, um, which is, you know, you know, it's on the uptick. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and again, I have to talk to you about cheers and all that, but, and, and something I read on Wikipedia, which I have to confirm if it's true, it's always dangerous to learn about somebody on Wikipedia, but um, I, I wasn't there. I moved to Chicago in 06. So I got there just after Chicago stadium closed and the United center opened. So I've heard legendary stories about Chicago stadium. I'm sure you spent time there as a kid. What was that building like? It, I, uh, I have to confirm the hype. It was amazing. Um, and uh, if you look back at it, it's really theater 101 um, because it, it's lighting and focus. Um, for example, okay, um, you know, my dad had season tickets that he shared with some other uh, friends of his. So we, I went to, you know, quite a few games. And then I, w w after, during college, I was an Andy Frayne usher. And uh, so I went to every home game. The only year, I think it was 1969, the, the only year they didn't make the playoffs. It was really weird. And, <laughs> I know, I know. And, uh, but um, when I, I'll never forget, you know, obviously the, so look, sorry, I'm all over the place, but That's bear okay. with me. You know, it was stacked straight up. It didn't, yeah. the seats did not go back. It was one, two, three decks straight up. Um, and the lighting back then was, uh, it was almost like a, a, a prize fight or something. They, these, um, they didn't have these big, butch, beefy lamps that are way up on the ceiling of buildings. And they shine down and light up the, the ice. But the ambient light is so bright and there's so many bells and whistles. It's like you're in a Vegas casino, you know, all the advertising and everything. So this is where I get back to theater 101. The, the focus is anywhere, but on the ice because all the distractions you can't, you know, you're just, you're looking at the hot chick in the next section. You're looking at, you know, the, uh, the scoreboard, you know, whatever highlight commercial they're running. You're all over the place. Um, then, so the lights hung way down from the ceiling and they were suspended about, you know, 20, 30 feet over the ice. 
So when the house lights went down, it was dead dark in the building. And all you could see was cigarettes, you know, like glowing in the dark and lighters. And uh, so the, the focus was only on the ice, only intensely on the ice. And that's a big problem right now. And also no helmets, uh, which I was right. always a fan of because the, the players, you know, that you could tell, you didn't even have to see their numbers. You could recognize them instead of looking like uh, drones, you know, that they, they, you know, you could see the personality and the hairdos and the, <laughs> the dreadful hairdos, but you know, I'm not, a, I'm not judging. And, and they were wearing helmets, uh, George, and they were going down and blocking shots. Yeah. I mean, you remember they throw, they throw their body in front of a guy taking a slap shot without a helmet. I mean, I, I grew up as an Islander fan pre-helmet time too. And, you know, I remember the guys like Gary Howitt and, you know, Jerry Hart and all those guys. And they would do this without a helmet throwing themselves in front of these mm -hmm. bucks. And, uh, you know, uh, I actually remember uh, when face masks for goalies were uh, kind of started. It was, I believe, a fellow from Montreal. I can't remember his name. Uh, Jacques, uh, somebody. Jacques Plant. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he was the first uh, helmet guy or uh, face mask guy. Face mask. I mean, yeah, crazy. You imagine? You imagine saying, "George, we're going to put you in net, George." And and by the way, you're not going to get a chance to put a face mask on, and we're going to have puck shot at your face. I know it's crazy. Not not for me. And and, and the last thing I wanted to ask on this subject is. I, I had Rick Barry on the podcast, the great NBA Hall of Famer. Yeah. And he talked about their trip to the championship, the year they beat the Washington Bullets. And he said he thinks the toughest team that he went up against was Bob Love and Jerry Sloan and Norm Van Leer, those Bulls teams uh, back in the 70s. I mean, people, you know, we, we remember the Jordan years, but people forget that was a pretty good team in the 70s that they had there. It was fantastic. It was Dick Mata and, uh, uh, you know, but uh, they, they – um... Chet Walker and but the thing is uh I always recall uh Sloan and Norm Van Leer kind of uh really invented the uh real physical uh backcourt uh defense and uh you know taking charges and all sorts of um you know reckless behavior <laughs> that uh, really uh I don't know I think they were uh, among the first to really uh, have that in tandem uh, with each other. Tough as yeah. both, both of them. I have a sidebar. Uh, yeah, go ahead. That's on that uh, story. So, you know, I'd like to shoot hoops now. I'd go, not anymore, God. <laughs> but uh, when we first moved to LA, I uh, found a, a neighborhood uh, park that had a nice court and, you know, some games going on in the afternoon. So uh, I would go over there, you know, once, twice a week. And uh, I was always the fat guy and, you know, never really, uh, you know, picked um, uh, when the games started. So uh, at one point, um, there was more than 10 people there. And so it was me and this, uh, this distinguished looking older gent, African-American, salt and pepper beard, uh, salt and pepper hair. It looked to be, a few, you know, about five years older than me 10 years older than me right and uh so we were left sitting on the bench and we i guess we would have been next or something but uh they didn't pick him and they didn't pick me uh him probably because he was older than me because you know i was fat <laughs> and uh uh so uh he goes hey uh i like your show 
I go, oh, oh, cool, because Cheers had just come on the air. Right. He goes, yeah, and I like uh, I like your character's name. And I go, oh, yeah. Oh. Like, Is that your name, Norm? And he goes, yeah. And I looked at him. Are you Norm Van Leer? It was. <laughs> it was Norm Van Leer sitting there on the bed. They didn't pick him. Not getting picked. No. I know. It's so crazy. That's unbelievable. Norm Van Leer doesn't get picked. I mean, there is a reason why, you, you know, you may have been on the sideline, but Norm Van Leer, I mean, come on. Well, you know, he was older. <laughs> he was a little. So, so you know, first of all, I, wa- I want to get to cheers. I was about to call you Norm. And I do wonder how often in life you've had to deal with co- people calling you that, thinking that's your actual name. Well, I don't think anyone thinks it's my actual name, but but, but it's an easy mistake, fair enough. I, uh, uh, but, um, it, you know, it doesn't really happen as often as... I, I mean, somebody might blurt it out, right? Um, you know, uh, in the, before they think. Uh, but, yeah, it's not that often, especially now. I mean, I... It looks a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I, I said I read something on Wikipedia. I'm not sure if it's true. You got to be careful with what you learn there. Uh, but you went to Notre Dame. Yeah. And is it true that you pulled the Blutarski and had a great point average of 0.0? Yeah, it was just for one semester, though. But I mean, no, I mean, I went there uh, till the middle of my junior year. But yeah. the, the only semester that I had a 0.00, that was my last. <laughs> but that's one of the finest it's not an easy college to get into it's one of the finest institutions on the planet how do you end up there and end up with a 0.0 well two things um i tested well yeah and um my dad was a leg i mean my dad was an alum okay so i, I, I kind of got into notre dame the way george bush got into yale you know w <laughs> got into yale uh, legacy <laughs> And how did your family feel about the 0.0? Oh, God. <laughs> like, what's the reaction when they're paying tuition and uh, you come home with a 0.0? Well, it was the ultimate passive-aggressive, uh, you know, uh, way to distance yourself from your father. Y- you know, I-, I suppose if I if I had uh, any balls, I would have um, done something significant like burn my draft card in order to you know, distinguish myself from my father at age, whatever, 18. And um, uh, so I was too much of a pussy to do that. So I, instead, I I flunked out of his alma mater, which is really ultimate passive aggressive. Did, did, did you have conflict with your family when you were young? Were, did, were you, did you get along with your dad? Yeah. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, he was tough and, you know, wanted me to be a little more uh, of a go-getter and all that, um, but I, I just wasn't. And, uh, but um, it wasn't, you know, huge conflict, but uh, it was, uh, what was your question again? And did you get along with your dad? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I was the first born son. I think yeah. it's always a fraught relationship. Um, especially with a, 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 a very accomplished sort of, you know, a successful guy uh, yeah. driven more, way more than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 I mean, you talk about that and it makes me wonder, 
you know, you decide what your passion is. Like, like, let's talk about your path here because when did you decide that this was going to be your pursuit? Because success, success came relatively young for you. I, I think you had a background doing some Second City stuff. Yeah. Um, I worked with two Second City comedians, as a matter of fact, when I did radio in Chicago for 10 years. I did a morning show with two guys. And I know there were different wait, groups. Wait, wait, who are two guys? Uh, they were uh, Kevin Fleming and TJ Shanoff. Oh, cool. And TJ Shanoff was like a musical director, but also very funny. <laughs> they were like my sidekicks when I was doing a morning show in Chicago for a couple of years there. Yeah. Um, and I know the people that come through that just have a tremendous passion for it. So how did you head up in that direction? And, and were your, were, was your family accepting of that? I didn't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> it was, um, you know, because uh, coming, you know, uh, from the south side you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a typical career choice and um it took me a while to uh figure out like i in at no time did i want a career in entertainment or anything like that or or even and to be an actor it was none of that really I, honest to god i just wanted to i was i was really wanted to do something that I wouldn't hate. That was my entire focus. And so I, I just thought and thought and thought and, and years, really a couple of years before I could, um, after college, before I could uh, figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And, and, and the only thing that I, that I wouldn't hate I thought would be if I could be in Second City because I had seen it once or twice, and thought it was just looked like five or six, you know, young men and women goofing off on stage, and I was pretty sure they got paid for it. And I said, "Well, I, God, I bet I wouldn't hate that." And so uh, I tried for it, and I had no idea how difficult it was to get into Second City because that's how clueless that was. So uh, I just went ahead and went for it, and uh, and it wasn't until I uh, got hired there and and worked there for a couple of years. And I said, "Oh God, I guess I'm an actor." I guess. So I'm sitting here listening to the story now, now George, as the parent of three kids, you know, two in their twenties and one a teenager, and I'm thinking, if this was my kid, this sounds like a horrible plan. You drop, you, you get you get flunked out of Notre Dame, and you didn't do it because you really had a plan. Then you had to figure out what you wanted to do. You hadn't really; it wasn't a passion from being a kid. It's not like you did school plays and all that stuff. And then you said, "Maybe I'll just do Second City." You know, it reminds me. I don't know if you were a Seinfeld fan, but when George gets fired and he goes, "You know, I, I want to be in sports," and he goes, and Jerry's like, "You know, well, that usually goes to you know former players and stuff like that." And he's like. It may not have been the best plan to lose your job. This sounds like a terrible plan. Yeah, it was. It was a terrible plan. <laughs> uh, like I have no idea what I would have done if I uh, if if it didn't work out for me. But I was lucky as hell. God. Well, what, what what were you were, were you like the funny kid? Were you were you getting in trouble in school because you were the class clown? Like, why do you think you could do this? I was not the class clown, um, but I watched and observed and stole from all the class clowns in my childhood. And I was a really good audience for them and uh, admired them. And um, But then I, I, 
I kind of got funny, like at parties and stuff. Um, and I don't know what that came from, you know, maybe weed or something. You know, I don't know what. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I started to get funny. And so I thought maybe I could, uh, you know, when I saw what they were doing at Second City, it was like just perfect because I, I didn't feel funny like um, Rodney Dangerfield or, you know, a stand up or a double act or anything. Um, but instead, I saw this this ensemble comedy uh, based in improvisation. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. You don't have to write anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just got to uh, behave and be funny on stage. And um, honest to God, it was it, it's a miracle. I don't understand how that worked out for me, but uh, that's all I wanted. And that's what I got. You know, we we had very similar approaches to life. I, I wanted to choose something. What can I get paid for that that I like doing? That really, oh, I could talk sports. Yeah, heck. But how the hell am I going to get a job doing that? Somehow somebody hired me, and yeah. you know, I, I've managed to fool them all these years. Yeah. But how did you get the first job? Well, the first job was Second City. Yeah. How did you get it though? You walk in the door and you go, uh, um, No. Well, I called up uh, the box office. Uh, they love that. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, I said, this is uh, about two, three years after I got out of college. I, I finally graduated from uh, Rockhurst College in Kansas City, Missouri. S similar reputation to Notre Dame. <laughs> well, it, it's a small liberal arts uh, Jesuit college, not Holy Cross Fathers, but, um, and I'm not particularly religious either, but uh, that's, there you have it. That was my background. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, I said, I understand you have workshops. And they said, uh, yeah, we do. Um, it's uh, 13 weeks, 85 bucks, uh, meets Tuesday nights at uh, five o'clock. And um, give me your address, I'll send you a flyer. So they mailed me a flyer and I showed up and paid my 85 bucks and, uh, you know, where did you get the money? Did you have a job? I've worked uh, a couple of jobs. Um, I had one job, uh, a construction job. <laughs> or <laughs> was I not cut out for that? Uh, but a friend of mine got it, uh, helped me get it. So I was happy to get because it was good money in the day. And then I also worked in my dad's office as just sort of an office boy, um, you know, filing, Xeroxing, running out for lunch, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. And uh, and I was living at home. So God bless, you know, my parents were putting up with that. And so it was easy to save the money. Uh, and, they, and they know nothing about this. You're going to sneak out. Oh, yeah. Gonna... Yeah, I didn't tell any of my friends or any of my family because I knew what would have happened, you know. Hey, what happened? I thought you were going to go down to Second City. What happened with that? And uh, what funny guy, huh? Uh, so I just went down there on the sly. Uh, and, you know, I, I really, really liked it. It was, it was interesting. And my teacher, Josephine Forsberg, um, she was very, very nurturing and very positive and upbeat and you know, there were some not so nurturing uh, 
people in that environment. <laughs> um, you know, the legendary director Del Close uh, uh, was also holding workshops, and uh, I was not in his class. Thank God. <laughs> you know, I, I worked with Del for uh, six years um, in the company, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite fond of Del, but uh, not as a teacher for an absolute beginner. No, no, he would chewed you up and spit you out so so for 13 weeks you're paying them to take workshops mm -hmm. and then when you're done with that do they hire you is that how you got in <laughs> no, no 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 uh i mean like a lot of the people weren't all that serious there, there were some people who had other sort of jobs in the workshop maybe 15 people in the workshop <clears throat> and uh some were more serious than others some were there I'd say half were there on the recommendation of their therapists. You know, like, <laughs> you should uh, take an improv class. Uh, you know, think about that. Work out some of your issues. <laughs> your gut. And, um, but, uh, you know, there were some people like Brandon Tartikoff, a legendary programmer for NBC. Yeah. And, uh, was, was he there in Second City? He like was in my workshop. He was in my class. Wow. And it, wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And we were how to work out, how to work out for him. <laughs> how to work out for Brandon Tarnikoff. <laughs> well, rest in peace. The uh, poor guy had some health issues, but yeah. but he he had a tremendous career. And I'll never forget we were we were they had a showcase this workshop. And uh we Brandon and I were both a little too green to be in the showcase, but we wanted to be involved. So it was Saturday nights in this church in the neighborhood right. near second city and um and uh you know 40 50 people would show up that kind of thing and uh, and so uh we wanted to help out so brandon would sell coffee and cookies and uh i would uh set up cha folding chairs and break them down after the shop and one night after the show this triumph of a show magnificent like you know, everyone's family and friends were there. And uh, and uh, Brandon said to me, George, one of these, as I'm breaking down the chairs and he's breaking down the coffee, he says, George, one of these days, it's going to be me and you up on that stage. And, you know, he's like, yeah, that'd be cool. And then Brandon disappeared. And I had no idea where he went. Of course, he went to New York with Fred Silverman. And, you know, we can't, you know, kept climbing the ladder at ABC and then NBC. But, uh, and then Brandon resurfaced back uh, when I was at Second City. Like a, a few years later, he, you know, he was fantastic uh, to me. You know, he, he, uh, he was in charge of cheers for starters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good place. And, you know, I want to get to cheers because I, I think, well, let me ask you this. I think of your role on Cheers and, you know, TV has changed so dramatically. You know that today with, you know, all the ways to deliver it. But, you know, in, in the 70s, to me, that was the height. 70s and 80s, the height of TV sitcoms, you know, whether it was Cosby or Happy Days. And of course, you guys came around. I would consider the role you played one of the most iconic figures in the history of sitcom television. Like, if you say the name Norm, if you're my age or anywhere near my age, and I'm in my upper 50s, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about immediately. 
If you say the Fonz, everybody knows what you're talking about almost immediately. There aren't too many characters like that. Would you agree that it's one of the most iconic characters that, that TV sitcoms have ever had? Uh, it, it's, you know, I mean, it's not, I don't want to toot to toot my own horn or anything, but, but um, you know, uh, you're not entirely incorrect. Uh, yeah, and, and I don't, but by the way, I don't think it is tooting your own horn. You Look, you weren't the star of the show. That was, you know, uh, Sam Malone, or, you know, I'll go by his uh, TV name. Um, you know, there were, there were others. You were one of the, the, the many in the cast, but, you, you know, the name, the way we reflect when we hear the name, it has a different ring than almost everybody else. A lot of the characters, you may not remember all the names on the show, but when somebody says Norm, you immediately think of your role in that show. And that's why I think it's such an iconic moment in TV history. Well, I'm flattered uh, if that's the case. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's humbling and flattering. Yeah, well, let, let's go back to how you got there because first of all, I, I want to talk about Cheers, which was not successful at the beginning, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was, it was almost a failure. We were in last, its first dead last. Yeah. In your I mean, you can't be any worse. You do that today. It's like in, in the NFL today where we preach patience. You're a bad quarterback year one. You're out of a job. Yeah. You don't have a year two. And, and it, you know, it, that may be the case with TV today. But how old were you when you, got, when you got there? And how did you get the job on Cheers? Did you go on an audition? I mean, how does that come about? Uh, let's see, 30, uh, 1982, I would have been 33. I would have turned 34 uh, in October of 82. We came on the air in uh, September. Uh, we, uh, I, you know, my agent called and said, uh, honey, they, they, they want to see you on this new uh, pilot, Cheers. Um, and uh, you remember those guys, you did a taxi. And, uh, you know, I, I moved to L.A. in 1980. And I, I got some uh, lucky, you know, with, you know, some episodic work. I was on soap and taxi and mash and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, just, you know, little one-off things. And they said, remember you did taxi and those guys, Glenn Charles and Les Charles and Jim Burroughs? You liked them, right? I, yeah, yeah, they were great. And uh, they, they want you to come in, um, but it's a really small role. But I don't know. I think you should, you know do it and uh how small is it well it's uh it's really just one line oh okay <laughs> actually actually she says uh it's really one word well one syllable and i go oh what's the syllable she said beer <laughs> and so i was meant to be shelly long's first customer in the tag of the pilot where, okay. Hello, I'm Diane. I'll be your waitress. Well, I'm not really a waitress. I'm an academic. And then she goes on for like a half a page, you know, describing her situation. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, I should go take your order. What can I get you? And I go, beer. And that was it. And uh, so the casting director, I'm sitting there at Paramount, and the casting director says, Yeah, that's just not enough to read. You know, this, uh, here, read this other role. And it was this character named George. And uh, I thought, oh, oh. And um, so I start reading it, and uh, it's the Norm character, right? 
and uh, they wind up offering it to me. And uh, um, uh, so years later, decades later, um, I find out I was the, the Charles brothers were doing a symposium at UC Santa Barbara um, and Jim Burroughs. They were doing this uh, thing for theater and film, whatever. And uh, so the audience members were asked, it was a bit of a Q&A at this point. Oh, they asked me to come uh, to be sort of a surprise in the program. I'd come on about halfway through and join them on stage. Uh, so I'm sitting in the wing and uh, they go, uh, someone in the audience goes, now when you were uh, writing Cheers, did you have anybody in mind for uh, uh, the characters? And they go, oh, God, no. Oh, no, we saw everybody in Hollywood. We, and they're talking about Sam and Diane, right? Right. And so they go, oh, it's New York and Hollywood and mixing and matching and energy and chemistry. And we spent months. Uh, and, and, uh, but uh, Rhea, we had Rhea in mind and, and George. And I'm like, what? How did I find this out? It was like literally like five years ago. Wow. Uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't know that, you know, that they were that interested because I would have fucked it up somehow. I guess. <laughs> so you get the job. Do you remember what the paycheck was your first year? Yeah. Well, what was the paycheck? Uh, that's not kosher, is it? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's a long time ago. It's not, it's not, it's bad form. It is really, yeah. It was low, it was low, though. Yeah, listen, listen, I, I'm always willing to share my first job in radio 200 bucks a week back in 1987. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think anybody worries now. I mean, because you know, it became such a hit, but so you're on the show, and it, it is, it was a relatively small role. And, and I watched Cheers when it came on, and I liked the show, yeah. Um, but it was a relatively small role, and as you said. It was not a success no. in its first season. So, and I always knew as a kid, you know, I learned this later in life too. You know, it wasn't so much about the show. It was positioning, what you want after, what was the lead in. You had to be in the right spot, et cetera. And I know that played a role in success later, but what were you thinking after year one? Are you thinking, well, there's not going to be year two of this. There's no way this is going to survive with the viewership that we have. I thought so. Well, look, you know, it's, it's always uh, best to, you know, be grounded and, you know, somewhat pessimistic and be pleasantly surprised. But uh, the the critical uh, reaction was uh, really overwhelming. Um, even though we were, you know, poor, very poor ratings, um, we, uh, you know, the, I mean, we, I think we won all the Emmys. Um, you know, Shelley won. The show won, the writers won, Jim Burroughs won for directing. Um, so, you know, it's going to be tough to pull the plug on us, I think, at that point. But, um, and then you're right that by then, by the second season, we got sampled a bit in reruns, but then Cosby came on and that, then the whole night just took off like a rocket ship. Um, yeah. It was all because of Cosby. Yeah, like Thursday night was dominated by NBC and, and the, the run of sitcoms that they did because of all those great shows. Yeah, the shows were great. And also, Cosby, you know, besides being a great show, was just a rating phenomenon. 
Yeah, it, it was extraordinary. So, and the other thing I think about that show, and, and tell me if, it, if you have any sense when you're on it, because listen, you probably know this, uh, George, you know, when I see people promoting shows, they talk about how great everybody is. I always say that whether you're in my business or your business, there's a mutual admiration society. Everybody's great. And yet on that show, I actually thought it was true. I, I thought it was so perfectly cast that everybody's role, you know, Taxi was much the same way with, you know, Christopher Lloyd and Danny DeVito. And, you know, you had the one straight guy that kept everybody together. Cheers had that same feel to it, that everybody had this really unique personality and it all came together with, you know, the people in the middle. Did you have that feeling when you were doing it? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we, we were all youngish, except for Nick Colasanto. Right. Uh, but he was even a fresh face uh, in, a, in a sense, even though he was, you know, in, in his late 50s at the time. Uh, but he hadn't done that much on camera. He was more of a TV director, oddly. Um, but uh, so we were all jumping into the deep end together. And that was a bonding thing. And also Jim Burroughs, you know, I mean, oh, and, you know, really the entire team, because, you know, you start at the top with Grant Tinker and Brandon Tartikoff uh, were, were running NBC at the, at the time. And they had tremendous faith in us. And Tinker's philosophy was to put quality programming on the air and leave it there and let the audience find it damn the ratings that so we really benefited from that and uh but the quality of the writing was so special and and the way jimmy burrows uh you know kept us all kept the i don't know kept the ensemble together you know nobody really took off in, in diva mode or anything like that. Yeah. And so it was great. Uh, and I, I'll tell you something else that seemed to be special about it. And, and listen, I could be wrong about this. I never got the feeling that the show jumped the shark, which of course comes from the great Happy Days episode when Fonzie actually jumped a shark. But, you know, Cosby at some point had to introduce a baby to the show. Right. You guys transitioned out of characters. And I, I certainly want to talk about Coach, who you brought up. Yeah. But you did so, and, and what I thought you did so effectively was you didn't bring in guys to replace them with similar personalities. Shelley Long leaves, and you bring in Kirstie Alley. And they were two completely different characters. You think? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and Woody Harrelson comes in, completely different characters. I mean, you did that so effectively. That, that I'm amazed at how well you did that. Usually stars leave a show, yeah. and you well, how are we going to replace them? And what are we going to do? We better go bigger and better. And you never really tried that, and it always seemed to work. Yeah, and also, let's not forget, Kelsey uh, Grammer joined in. Right. And uh, B.B. Newworth, just, you know, we we the, they just knocked it out of the park with the casting and characters. But, you know, you mentioned, you, you uh, mentioned Taxi just now, and uh, I think Reverend Jim was uh, maybe a third-year addition also. So, you know, it's uh, the good writers, good teams, you know, come up with uh, good ideas. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's all there is. The one thing I read about, too, was, and, and I, I don't know if I have the history of this correctly, Nicholas Colasanto, who played coach, yeah. passed away at the end of, was it season three that he passed away? Somewhere in that neighborhood, correct? 
it might have been the end of season two, but um Okay. Yeah. And and I, I remember there was always like debate about how to handle that. And I, I don't know, like as you reflect back on that, was it weird that it almost wasn't addressed on the show? Like how, how did that whole thing play out? Well, it was it was, you know, it was horrible. But I mean he died quite suddenly. He he was ill. We knew he was ill, but we didn't think he was gonna just up and die. Uh but he did. And uh, so, but it was right at the end of, of a season. So there was maybe two, three episodes and it was either season two or season three. That's so weird that I can't remember. But um, uh, we just sort of said he was off somewhere. I don't know what, um, visiting somebody or something. But then, so we didn't really have to deal with the death because when there was a season in between, there was a summer hiatus and they really got a chance to think it through. And they just picked up when Woody joined as when um, that he had been a pen pal with coach and, uh, you know, wanted to come see him and learn that he died. And uh, so then, you know, Sam hired him. Once you were established and, and you have to make a transition with some of the people on the show and, and Woody Harrelson came in to replace coach, obviously. And, and who knew after, you know, what he played on cheers that he'd become an Academy award winning actor. I mean, yeah. what an extraordinary career. Like, yeah. did you know him before he joined the show and what was your impressions of him when you first met him? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I did not know him before the show, except for the night before. Um, when I met him was, uh, I was at the supermarket, um, in the neighborhood here and I was looking at whatever, you know, some produce or meat or something. And I noticed these two young guys, by young, I mean, they were probably in their early twenties or something. And they were sort of giggling and pointing at me and giggling. And now we'd been on the air now for a couple of years. So, uh, I was sort of used to it um, and it uh, didn't bother me, you know, whatever, but I did notice them. And one of them kept pushing the other one over towards me over, over. And it was like, this is weird. And then uh, finally he, he goes, okay, okay. And he, so he comes up and he goes, hi, um, just wanted to say hello. Uh, I never saw your show, but my friend there tells me you're on, on cheers. And uh, just wanted to see, he, he, begged me to come say hello because he's gonna uh because i, I have an audition tomorrow for to uh, play the the new bartender wow i said oh that's fantastic that's great uh he goes yeah thanks and and i go uh, well good luck with that um what uh what's your name uh, i'm george what's what's your name and he goes woody and i go and i i Serious XM right. I knew podcast. name was woody um so i go oh no no not the character i mean what's your name and he goes woody i go uh, okay i think i might see you tomorrow then i'm not sure and sure enough there he was at the table read a uh, new cast member woody harrelson and he, <laughs> and he was relatively new and and you know he he fit right in and became you know also an interesting character and then exploded into the actor that he became 
Well, you know, he's a young guy, and and he he was relatively new, but not, uh, he was he was fantastic. You know, he he had just come off the um, the uh, national tour of Biloxi Blues, uh, where he was an understudy for uh, one of the young GIs in this Neil Simon comedy, and uh, he <laughs> he was just so much fun from the beginning. Um, you know, the, the the writers said that he, when he walked in for the audition, I guess he, he had uh, allergies or something or that, but uh, he, he pulled a handkerchief out of his back pocket and, you know, this is just, just walks in and they're introducing themselves and he, he blows his nose, <laughs> a big, you know, like, and they just broke up laughing. It's so woody, you know, just guileless yeah when, when when you were part of the show and you know i i learn about you know, how things are done mostly through watching you know movies or whatever were you part of like you know during the week when the writers would get together and would you have input into not the script per se but how you wanted to deliver a line or or were the writers pretty strict because i've heard different things about different sitcoms somewhere they allow the actors to play a role in their character and others where We'll write the lines you deliver them. Well, the, you never got the feeling that um, that they were sort of sitting deliver something in a certain way. Now, Jim Burroughs, you know, uh, who uh, would be on stage with us, he wasn't in the writers' room uh, except for when he was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He, you know, he would of course direct us and give us suggestions. But for the most part, um, if if a joke didn't work, those guys would rewrite the joke. Um, I think they sort of trusted that we were that we had a good take on on the material, and. Uh, it, they didn't really sit on us too much to um now once in a while you know some of the, some of the writers were a little more persnickety i mean after all we there's 11 years 275 episodes um so some writers were a little more um insistent that we uh put the make sure we had this correct exact way they wrote a joke but um no uh, early on it was, they always just rewrote it. And, you know, yeah. I would almost miss the jokes sometimes. Like, but they were always better with the rewrites were <laughs> always better. It's so, it's, it's kind of a shame some of the jokes they threw away. You know, I wish I had another crack at them, but oh well. Yeah. You know, and, and I think you're one of four, one of the four cast members that did every show, right? You were there for, yeah. I, I think it was you, Ted Danson. Uh, John Ratzenberger and Rio Perlman, were you the only four that made it from start to finish? Um, John, not that many people would know this, but John only missed one show, and it was the second show because he was not signed on as a cast regular. He, he oh, this is a way better casting story than me. Um, okay, John uh, actually went in for my role, George, and. Uh, he he uh sensed that it wasn't going well and so uh 
this is like uh, he says, they say, well, thanks very much. And he goes, yeah, thank you. And he literally, not figuratively, literally had one foot out the door of the room. And he pops his head back in and said, do you guys have a bar know-it-all? And they go, no, what do you mean? And, and he started improvising this cliff. And they, wow. wrote, it, they wrote it in. Wow. So, yeah, That's fascinating. So they didn't have the budget uh, for another series regular. So they signed John as, um, you know, some kind of other deal. They do like seven out of 13 or something. And, uh, but they wound up, uh, they missed him after they, he was in the first one, not in the second. And they were like, man, let's bring him in for the third. And then he, ne they never, you know, he did all the rest. Yeah. Ted, Ted uh, did, was, appeared in all the episodes. And so did Rhea. But Rhea was um, pregnant at least three times and might have missed a couple of shoot nights um, delivering babies. <laughs> and uh, uh, Ted, Ted had, he was shooting a movie in Africa or something. And he missed a couple of shoot nights also. But wow. they, they went back and reshot, you know, so he appeared in each episode. I, did you miss anything? You, you I did have... not miss a single. I wow. with the bell 275 times. Yeah. Uh, wow, that, that's pretty impressive. And I will tell you, I don't know if people, you know, when we say, hey, do you have a favorite episode? People ask me, who's your favorite interview? But my favorite episode of Cheers, if, if you have any interest in this at all, is still to this date, the episode when Cliff went on Jeopardy. <laughs> Because I watch it and he gets, you know, it, it's the, the only way he could blow this is if he bets it all. And of course it was, I don't even remember the three names, but it was like, the answer was uh, three guys that have never been in my kitchen. And I see it and I still laugh out loud to this day. <laughs> yeah. I forget the questions too, but um, yeah, that was, that was classic. And he also went on Johnny Carson. I mean, that was maybe a bit jumping the shark. But um, was that was that jumping the shark? Well, you know, I don't think the show really suffered after it, uh, like everyone claims uh, Happy Days did. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, you know, Cliff gets a stand-up shot on Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know what I mean? And of course, um, his mom, I go, and and Frances Sternhagen, the great uh, actress who played uh, Ma Clavin. <laughs> She uh, she winds up getting all the laughs, heckling Cliff from the stands. <laughs> right. Johnny invites Cliff, uh, Franny Sternhagen and me up on stage, and uh, Cliff's big moment is ruined by Mark Clavin. So. Yeah. So I only have a few minutes left. What did you watch growing up? Like, did you watch sitcoms? You know, obviously, it was I Love Lucy and, you know, maybe The Honeymoon. I don't know what you were watching because you're a little older than me. What were you watching growing up? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love Lucy, um, the Honeymooners, um, I suppose father knows best in those things, but, um, my three sons, but, um, uh, and then the variety shows, you know, um, yeah. Ernie Kovacs and, um, um, Red, Red Skelton and those sorts of things, um. You know, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of choices back then. Yeah, you know, I, I reflect back on it. You ever think about the shows that well, I watched as a kid, mostly in reruns? You may have watched them when they were, you know, in first run. That you just couldn't do today. F Troop, 
and um, Hogan's Heroes. I mean, you know, could you imagine doing those shows today? <laughs> Just in terms of political correctness and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, I cannot. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I remember even, you know, Gilligan's Island, which, you know, I always remember, you know, by the way, I wanted to ask you about this because I remember watching the Munsters as a kid. And I always remember reading about Fred Gwynn, who would talk about not always being thrilled with playing the role of Herman Munster because I thought it got him typecast and he was a Harvard alum. He never, he didn't reflect on it favorably. How do you reflect on your role? Well, I reflect on it uh, very favorably. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of typecasting is peculiar, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I continue to work, but um, there are projects that I don't hear about probably because people associate me too much with Norm, but, um, uh, but I mean, I'm never playing an out of work Barfly accountant, so I'm not typecast in that sense. Uh, but you know, um, anyway, uh, but I mean, I wouldn't trade it. Who would trade? You know, uh, no, I would not trade my career. You know, for for uh, something else. Yeah, yeah, and 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 are you in contact with the cast members? I mean, is is there any communication with those guys? Yeah, yes, I, I am. I, I don't know if everybody talks to everybody but um i'm on you know good terms with everybody now it's impossible to get together with people but uh you know i call people at the drop of a hat and you know yeah we make plans to get together someday but you know yeah and and what have you done this past year by the way have you done anything no not much just nothing uh, you know a lot of zoom work um you know, play readings and things like that. And a couple of odd gigs, um, you know, that, you know, peculiar, you know. The whole thing stinks, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last thing, and I'll let you go. Uh, how many times, if at all, have you been to the Wiener Circle? I, I definitely have been. But, um, you know, uh, I work quite a bit with uh, Robert Smigel, as as you probably know, is the Superfans creator yep. character. And uh, one of the funniest bits of video I've seen in years is uh, uh, when Triumph, the insult comic dog, goes to uh, the Wiener Circle with Jack McBriar. That um, <laughs> they reduce Jack McBriar to tears. <laughs> and uh, and then he comes back with triumph, and and Smigel just tears them a new asshole. It's yeah, it was an extraordinary moment. I yeah. I remember watching that as well. And just real quick, tell me about your experience with Brett Favre because I work with him every week on NFL Radio. Um, I think he's like a sly fox. Like you know, people think oh, Southern guy, but I think he gets it. I think he's come a long way since something about Mary when he did that when he did the bit with you. He delivered his lines far better than he did back then when he was in the movie. What was it like working with him? Uh, he was fantastic, uh, really nice, really fun. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say in the same vein, Peyton Manning, uh, uh, we also did, you know, a bit with him on his show. And, uh, man, that guy's hilarious. Um, he's, got, he's got good timing, right? Yeah, yeah, he's great. 
and and Brett was great too. It was really fun. I mean, that super fans, you know, 30 years later, the little gig that could, it's so funny. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with George Went Norm from Cheers. And now what we have to do is get Woody Harrelson, Ted Danson, Rhea Perlman, uh, John Ratzenberger, and everybody else that was on that show. And we could just do these podcasts for the next couple of years because that was really a lot of fun. Uh, you can catch my podcast every Thursday. Find it where podcasts can be heard on the SiriusXM app and everywhere else you get your podcast. I hope you'll join me next Thursday. I'm Bruce Murray.